September 1995. 41.73 degrees north. 49.95 degrees west. Nearly halfway across the Atlantic Ocean. And two miles deep. James Cameron, his cinematographer Al Giddings, and a Russian pilot, Anatoly Sigalovich, were plunging into a pitch-black abyss, with no visibility and only their radar to guide them. Anatoly, is that her? What? What did you say? That radar blip in the middle. Blip? What is it, Blip? Is that her? Hard to tell from this far away. The trio was trying to relax inside the cramped cabin of a submersible called Mir-1. From the outside, it resembled a small blimp with a propeller that operated in extreme water pressures. And by request of James, a hydraulic arm with a 35-millimeter camera and two custom-built racks of high-intensity lights. They'd need them in the pitch black of the Atlantic Ocean floor. Boy, the manual really doesn't tell you how tight it is in here. <laughs> you claustrophobic? Just six foot two. <laughs> All right, firing up the lights. What, what was that? Their tiny submersible rumbled. Whoa, totally. Was that the motor? No, we lost one of the lights. Oh, oh, yeah, okay, I see. At this depth, even the smallest pocket of air, like the housings that encased the lights, could create a dynamic shock if they collapsed, force equivalent to a pipe bomb that could damage their sub. Tully, we all right? Looks okay, no damage. Well, that's why we have 10 lights. <laughs> Al, uh, radio to surface. Kaldish, come in. We uh, lost a light, but no other damage. Over. Maybe let's wait until we get closer for more lights. Copy that, Mir-1. What is your location? Over. Now passing 12,000 feet, 500 ocean floor. Over. Copy that, Mir-1. Standing by. Over. Slowing descent. Jim, any visual? Uh, negative. Just more ocean. But, but I only have the one light on. Uh, I can't see. This tiny cockpit had three small windows built that way to withstand the pressure. Even the smallest crack of glass would cause an immediate underwater implosion, killing everyone. It also meant James had to press his face up against the hatch to see anything. 300 feet to floor. We should be close. Uh, Tully, I, I think your radar is a little off. It's not off, it's just Russian. <laughs> it works when it wants to. Oh. See? It works again. 250 feet. Out the hatch, James could see a greenish-gray ocean floor beginning to appear. Got a visual. Oh, it's, it's, it's like the surface of the moon. 200 feet. No, we're closer than that. It looks like maybe 100 feet. Do you guys hear that? It's the current. It's fine. 80 feet now. Yeah, that looks about right. Totally. We're coming in at an angle. I'm trying to balance it. 
Still dropping. Whoa. I got it. Totally. You got it? I got it. 40 feet. Ah, damn it. We lost another light. 25 feet. Totally. I got it, Jim. Anatoly pumped the ballast to lighten the sub, then fired the side thrusters. We're gonna crash. Wheel at the camera arm. Totally, talk to me. I got it, Jim. You oh, don't okay. got it. I got it. Jim. I got it. What do we do? Totally, what do we do? Brace for impact! Whoa! Oh god! Hold together, baby. Uh, let's see what's out there. Uh, must have lost another light in the crash. The crash landing had kicked up a cloud of gray silt. With each light turning on, the shade of blue outside the hatch turned brighter and brighter until it was a fluorescent teal. The floating dust particles started to settle, still blocking any view. At least we landed right side up. Nothing out this side. How about you, Jim? James squinted to focus through the hatch and the dust. <sighs> Fading into view was a large shape, not too far away. The towering iron hull of a ship. <sighs> there she is. The following is a story of a Hollywood outsider and his unrelenting ambition to achieve the impossible. This is Blockbuster, Season 2, The Story of James Cameron. Episode 1. Spring 1977, Orange County, California. 22-year-old college dropout James Cameron sits in the driver's seat of a school district truck loaded with equipment and stainless steel vats of cafeteria food. Hey, Jim, you're clear. Let's go. Oh, yeah, yeah, yes, sir. Come on, Jim. Sorry, I was uh, somewhere else. Need you here, Jim. South parking lot. Let's go. Uh, roger that. Uh, sorry about that. James tosses his book and a yellow notepad and pencil to the floor. Growing up, James always showed promise, but now several years later, he was driving trucks and buses for a local school district, $4 an hour, unsure where his life was taking him. He rounded the corner into Brea Olinda High School. Hey, Jim. Hello. Yeah, can you back right up to the door? Yep, uh, sure. The worst part of this job was how it interrupted him right when he got his best ideas. So James was constantly writing them down to remember. Each page of his yellow notepad was filled up with ink, story ideas, diagrams, sketches, and anything he thought touched on something profound. Often, it was about destiny, if anyone really had any control over it. Okay, stop. Yeah, you're good. He sure didn't take this job so he could haul around hot slop. 
Uh, where, where do you want it? Bay 12, please. Oh, okay. Yeah, that cart in the corner. Okay. Thanks. James had blue eyes and blonde, wavy hair, like a surfer. He'd grown up the oldest of five siblings near Niagara Falls, Ontario. His family had moved to Orange County when he was a teenager, after his dad's job at a paper factory was transferred here. James thought he was moving to Hollywood, but it turned out living in a neighborhood 30 miles away wasn't all too different from his Ontario life. His mother, Shirley, was an artist, a free spirit, who encouraged his drawing and creativity. She was the opposite of his father, Philip, who believed creativity was a hobby at best. Philip had pressured his oldest son to pursue his natural talents in the sciences and study physics at Fullerton College. But James found himself miserable there. He met two friends in Orange County, Randy Frakes and Bill Wisher, who, like him, shared more of a passion for stories in science fiction than science fact. It led James to his first identity crisis. To his father's dismay, he stopped taking his physics classes and dropped out. His dad feared the worst. James might end up unfulfilled and unhappy. So far, his father was right about both of those. James felt trapped in a world where he didn't belong. Stories were his way out. He fantasized about ordinary blue-collar lives like his own, thrown into extraordinary circumstances. Um, factory workers encounter an extraterrestrial species they're unable to communicate with. His sketches helped visualize the settings, so many stories came with doodles of spaceships and animals and odd-looking plants and big philosophical questions next to them. What if technology became self-aware? James would lose himself in this world of exploration about the nature of humanity. He learned from his favorite science fiction authors growing up. His friends, Randy and Bill, were always impressed with his ideas. All right, set, Jim. See you Monday. Huh? Oh, great. Have a good weekend. Thanks. Uh, you, you too. Another weekend meant another trip north, 30 miles battling L.A. traffic to the University of Southern California. James spent hours here reading about cutting-edge film technologies from the USC Film School and photocopying student research papers to learn how this magical world of light and shadows worked. Hi, Mary. Uh, hey, Jim. 90 pages this time. <laughs> you, want, you want it all? Yes, please. Okay, that'll be $9 even. His parents, Philip and Shirley, worried about him. Philip especially saw James struggling in all the wrong places. Art is a hobby, not a career. Oh, Philip, plenty of people have careers in art. Shirley was an artist herself and often challenged Philip's stoic, practical outlook. She'd grown up as a bit of a rebel, a tomboy who'd volunteered for the Canadian Women's Army Corps and gone through basic training. She was feisty, and Philip liked that about her. I'm just saying, Jim, why don't you go back to college? I Finish well, your math classes, get your degree. I might, uh, but I don't think that's what I'm supposed to be doing. Don't you think you're capable of bigger things than driving trucks? Yeah, I know, Dad. I'll figure it out. Okay, son. That's what his binders of Xerox research from the USC library were all about. He was slowly building up a film school education on the cheap. 
Guys, look at this. So you know that scene in 2001 where the apes first discover how to use tools? Of course. The Dawn of Man scene, right? Next to a cave or something. James would share his discoveries with Randy and Bill. Yeah, yeah, check this out. They use a one-way mirror. Whoa, so it's see-through on one side? Exactly. Camera can shoot through it. Randy Frakes had been a journalist, now trying to switch over into screenwriting, and Bill Wisher was trying to become an actor. The trio loved going to the movies together. Each took away something new and different. And this summer, one movie would change all of their lives forever. Memorial Day weekend, 1977. James, Randy, and Bill stood in line for tickets at the box office of the historic Chinese Theater on Hollywood Boulevard. It was one of the only theaters showing a new science fiction film called Star Wars, which wasn't expected to be very good, but there wasn't much sci-fi out in theaters, and this one looked cool. There was a long line stretching down the sidewalk to buy tickets. Guys, look at that guy, dressed like a robot. <laughs> yeah. What's going on here? Next. Welcome to the Chinese theater. Can I help you? Uh, three for Star Wars at two. Okay. That'll be 10.50. Thank you. You might want to head in early and save seats. Every screening is selling out. Oh, wow. Okay. And here are your pins. Uh, what's this? The clerk slid three blue buttons across the counter. They had stars on them and a tagline for the movie. May the force be with you. It's from the movie. Oh, okay. Uh, huh. Here you go, guys. Thank you. Enjoy the show. Thank you. Jeez, this place is nuts. Bill, do you want your button? Oh, sure. Gentlemen, tickets. Uh, here you go. First theater on your right. Thank you. You guys want popcorn? Yeah. Will you guys get me one? I'll go save us some good seats. It was a good thing he did. The theater filled up fast, a full house. And when the lights went down, James, Randy, and Bill's lives would never be the same. What is going on? <laughs> this is awesome. So cool. James watched as many of his own science fiction ideas and spaceship drawings came to life like never before, fully realized by this director, George Lucas. Someone James felt had beat him to the punch. As the film ended, the audience broke into a wild applause unlike anything they'd ever heard before. It's all our idea. It's what? James always thought the ideas in his yellow notepad could be something more. Now, he knew it. I am done driving trucks. You're what? I'm quitting my job. We need to get to work. An awestruck audience spilled out of the theater doors. There was magic in the air, and James suddenly looked and sounded like a film producer. We can ask them to invest for a share of the return, uh, and, and there are some tax incentives, I think, uh, and, and then maybe a few thousand dollars we can try. Wait, invest in what? Xenogenesis, our script. Oh. Uh, Bill, you can start it. Oh, right on. James and Randy had been writing a story set in a futuristic space station where a young man and woman end up battling a giant tank-like defense robot. 
Right, we gotta get moving. It's only going to get harder to compete with this kind of stuff. You wanna shoot it? Yeah, it'll be our calling card. You think we can make it look good enough? Absolutely, no question. We'll rent out nice cameras, build out all the sets. They'd raise $20,000 from some dentists looking for a tax break, charmed by the unwavering confidence of this young James Cameron and his friends. James grew out his facial hair, just like George Lucas. He built futuristic set pieces inspired by the Death Star and rented cameras neither he nor Randy knew how to use. And he began shooting portions of the special effects with stop motion and other technologies James had learned at the USC library. For the first time since dropping out of college, James felt he had a purpose. Xenogenesis was 12 minutes long and showcased miniatures, rotoscoping, stop motion, and other effects James and Randy were sure would impress people in the film industry. They were trying to show it to companies all around town, but after months, only a few companies had shown any interest. Once again, James worried his father might have been right about this being a bad career path. Hello? Hey, Jim. It's Randy. Hey, buddy. So... What's the word? Well, I heard back from the Pillsbury Company. It's a uh, pretty good pay. Stop motion only, though. What is it? A, a kid's show? No. Pillsbury. Like the baking company? The Pillsbury Doughboy? You've got to be fucking kidding me. <laughs> I know. They saw our futuristic science fiction movie and thought, oh, let's get them to do our Doughboy. <laughs> I know. It pays really well, though. It was tempting. James and Randy both had gone back to taking low-paying jobs to survive. This was more money than any job they'd ever had before. What do you think, Jim? Well, that's not what we want to be doing. Uh, you think there's any way this will help us get into movies? Not really. Yeah, it's, it's not enough. I, I think we turned it down. That's what I thought you might say. Well, that's all we got for now. Listen, I saw a job listing in the paper for a production assistant. I'm going to go in, and I'll show the movie to them. What do they do? It's some kind of a props department. A, a guy named Roger Corman. He does a bunch of B-movies. Some science fiction. That sounds just about perfect. And if I get in, I'll get you in too. Thanks, buddy. One of these has to hit for us, right? Yeah. Somebody will eventually take notice. We just gotta keep showing it. James was determined to prove his father he belonged. When he went in to interview at New World Pictures, he showed Xenogenesis to the whole crew. Their reaction? Impressed. James was hired on the spot to help build props. It didn't pay much at about $175 a week, but it was a start. And true to his word, he would get Randy hired as well. James finally had his first big chance to prove himself, and he would give this job everything he had. Stay tuned for a preview of the next episode of Blockbuster and a short conversation about this episode. Hey, I'm Ross Marquand from The Walking Dead and Avengers Endgame. I play the role of James Cameron in Blockbuster. If you're enjoying this series, the best thing you can do is tell a friend and help us grow. Thanks for listening. On the next episode of Blockbuster... Are you doing all right for money? Yeah, Dad, uh... You're capable of more. James pushes for more money and more responsibility at work. Gross, Jim. You're not going to just reach in there. I can't. You just... Oh, I'm gonna be sick. And gets his first taste of being in charge. Hey, do you work here? Oh, hey, man. I'm actually... Yeah. Uh... I'm Jim. Listen, can you go paint that wall? 
Action. And sparks fly at New World Pictures. I'm Jim. Gail. Here, I'll uh, show you around. That's coming up on the next episode of Blockbuster. I'm series creator Matt Schrader. And I'm Peter Bovitz, the sound designer. Hey, I'm composer Fernando Arroyo Lascurain. I'm producer Elena Bovitz. And I'm Ross Marquand. I play the role of James Cameron in Blockbuster. And this is the first in our series of creator chats about the episode you just heard, the uh, season premiere of The Story of James Cameron. After each episode, the season will be breaking down some of the real stories, both things we couldn't fit into the series and the creative ways we tried to engineer this season's uh, unique story. You just heard the start of young James Cameron's journey. He's done driving trucks for $4 an hour. He's, he's now made his first sci-fi movie, Xenogenesis, with his buddies Bill Wisher and Randy Frakes. I interviewed both Bill and Randy for this series, and they'll be in a few bonus episodes throughout the season. But I was struck by the way they both described James' early passion for movies. They would go to a Denny's diner, is very, very casual after seeing a movie and just talk all night. They would break down all the, the themes and questions of the movie, especially the science fiction movies. And uh, James often had a notepad, very similar in some ways to what George Lucas and Steven Spielberg were doing mm. um, not too long before that. In fact, Peter, the, the audio connection here is one that you focused on for this first episode, bridging the story from our season one, focusing on that kind of Star Wars as a centerpiece of this this blockbuster era to uh, to this one of James going yep. and seeing Star Wars at the very theater George yep. Lucas was eating a burger across from. Yep, uh, and I, I thought it was a nice connection. I think every time people ask us, oh, what is season two going to be about? Is it continuation? We're like, well... It's connected, but it's its own story. So, like, this is the actual connection. Like, mm -hmm. in our, the way we see it, George Lucas was eating that burger when James Cameron was standing in line to see that movie. And I, I, <laughs> mm -hmm. I thought that was great because I, I literally just pulled the same material we had for that episode, changed it up, made it slightly different, but it's the same car, car honks. You can compare the scenes. It's, it's really interesting that, you know, it's, as Matt said, Two different perspectives of the same situation. And it's true to the era, too, right? All those oh, yeah. sounds that are being created. Oh, yeah. And we're, we're, again, like last season, we're trying to be as accurate as possible. But at the same time, dramatic, you know, because we're, we're, we're making audio drama here. But one thing that we have to also mention is what the music does to that moment for us. And this is why Fernando's with us today. Uh, because it, music, in my opinion at least, um, it really elevates the scene and, and the decision that's happening. James's decision that he's going to be a filmmaker no matter what it takes. And, uh, you know, there was a, a bit of conversation in the early development phase mm -hmm. of blockbuster season two of how are we going to tell this story because we knew we were going to do james cameron and we had the, the script laid out and and at one point we threw out the idea hey what if we start off with the submarine scene and kind right. of do it as a cold open and it was i remember it was the evening i was walking my dog i called matt i said matt this is a radical idea i know but give it a shot and and it stuck and we stayed with it and i think it's a great opening to be honest i hope we you guys like it too mm -hmm. But it, in a way, it's not just for the sake of opening it with a cold open. It's really to show this is going to be a different story. This is a totally different human. And this guy is really going to put himself into really dangerous situations um, 
to you know to to achieve what he wants to achieve his own uh, legacy, his own story. And Peter, you mentioned Fernando. I want to introduce our composer for season two, composer Fernando Arroyo Lascarain. And uh, the music has blown me away. It's been a, a pleasure to be working on this with you, Fernando. Thank you, thank you. We have about two and a half hours of music over the course of this series, mm-hmm. an immense amount of work. And, uh, and all of it is new, which as a storyteller, I love. I want to lean into the music for that, that emotional kind of heartbeat to be able to, to tell the things that can't be done in words. Yes, one thing that uh, I think has been very important to us since we started talking about this process is really utilizing the music as a true storytelling tool. And mm-hmm. a lot of what we've done in our first early talks was deciding what James's theme was going to be. And I remember we got together several times and it was just me and you at the piano and I would play several iterations of what I had decided. Mm-hmm. And until we arrived to something that felt uh, it hit on the character of James. And what we want to do, and we did throughout the series, is develop those themes and the musical character as well. To the point that in this first episode, we introduce hints of what will eventually become the full-fledged James's character. For example, when he's in the truck that he drives, we introduce kind of a deconstructed version of the theme or a little bit different from where the theme is going to go. I'm, I'm really excited for where it's all building because I've heard it. Mm. <laughs> and it's great. <laughs> Elena, I also want to bring you in to talk about the scale of this season. Um, Elena, the producer of this series, we have 77 characters across the 10 episodes of this series. We might actually have a couple more than that when all is said and done. But that means a lot of cast to coordinate and record and keep track of paperwork and <laughs> get everything in order. Yes, actually, it's not just 77 characters. It's 77 speaking parts yep. because obviously it's a podcast and everyone is speaking right so this is really big this is you know a lot of feature films do not have 77 speaking characters <laughs> um so mm. th- this was quite a feat and we were really really lucky that we managed to record most before the lockdowns um that happened mm-hmm. because of the coronavirus we had some more recordings that we needed to do and we were able to figure out new ways to record some actors remotely and we'll talk more about that in future chats, but I think you got to do what you got to do. Yep. But yeah, for this season, we brought in mm-hmm. a casting director who's phenomenal and he helped us to find the caliber of voice actors we needed to bring this story to life. And that's uh, Johnny Gidcomb, who Correct. has done some amazing films. Huge shout out to Johnny. Including a bunch of the... Avengers movies, a lot of the Marvel films, some really, really uh, big films was able to put us in touch with some incredible people, including Ross Marquand, the star of the series playing James. You know him from The Walking Dead, where he plays Aaron, and you saw him as uh, Red Skull in Avengers Endgame. Ross, James begins this series a bit lost. Uh, Unlike the listeners, he doesn't yet know who he's going to become, uh, that he's going to be the greatest blockbuster filmmaker of all time. But here in this episode, he starts taking charge. Yeah, I love that, you know, you, you just think about artists in the early part of their careers and they all come from someplace, right? And you 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 forget about that first part of their journey oftentimes. And I just love that James and his buddies, uh, you know, we were working on the, the short film Xenogenesis, um, hoping it was going to be their calling card. When it, didn't, when it didn't work out, you know, they were hoping to, uh, you know, parlay that into some other opportunities and, of course, landing with one of the greatest, you know, independent filmmakers of all time, Roger Corman. I just, 
I love that that's where he started, where he got his real start. And, and it's, 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 it's really inspiring, I think, for every artist. It certainly inspired me. I loved hearing that. And already so interesting to see Jim, you know, 22 years old, driving trucks yeah. for a school district, $4 an hour. Now he says, I- I'm going to go make something of this. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. I, I think it's just really cool to think about him watching Star Wars with his buddies and being so inspired by that. I think it's it's just beautiful because that's, that's how we all, I think, got into film too. You know, something really resonated with us and we think oh, I could probably do something like that and then you go out and try it it's and, inspiring yeah you know, most times you fail yeah it, you, most times you fail but every once in a while you get a you get a win and it's 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 such a nice feeling <laughs> all right well that'll do it for our first of these creator chats stay tuned for our bonus interview with James lifelong friend Bill Wisher where uh, I actually sit down with him to watch Xenogenesis start to finish and uh, you can listen along to that. He said it's the first time in decades that he's seen it. Wow. And uh, you can hear the story of how he was almost electrocuted by one of the stunts that they <laughs> set up. So uh, that bonus interview will be out later this week. For Ross, Fernando, Elena, and Peter, I'm Matt Schrader. We'll see you again after episode Bye. two. Thanks, Matt. And please be sure to go rate and review Blockbuster wherever you get your podcasts. Blockbuster is written and narrated by me, Matt Schrader. Sound design by Peter Bavietz. Original music by Fernando Arroyo Lascarain. Produced by Elena Bavietz. Starring Ross Marquand. For more on Blockbuster, follow us on social media at BlockbusterPod. Or visit us online to support the creators at GetBlockbuster.com. Blockbuster is an original production of Epiclef Media.